Section 17 of Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 2, by John Calvin. Translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter 8, Part 4. Fifth Commandment. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. 35. The end of this commandment is, that since the Lord takes pleasure in the preservation of his own ordinance, the degrees of dignity appointed by him must be held inviolable. The sum of the commandment, therefore, will be, that we are to look up to those whom the Lord has set over us, yielding them honor, gratitude, and obedience. Hence it follows, that everything in the way of contempt, ingratitude, or disobedience is forbidden. For the term honor has this extent of meaning in Scripture. Thus when the Apostle says, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, 1 Timothy 5.17, he refers not only to the reverence which is due to them, but to the recompense to which their services are entitled. But as this command to submit is very repugnant to the perversity of the human mind, which, puffed up with ambitious longings, will scarcely allow itself to be subject, that superiority which is most attractive and least invidious is set forth as an example calculated to soften and bend our minds to habits of submission. From that subjection which is most easily endured, the Lord gradually accustoms us to every kind of legitimate subjection, the same principle regulating all. For to those whom he raises to eminences, he communicates his authority, in so far as necessary to maintain their station. The titles of Father, God, and Lord, all meet in him alone, and hence whenever any one of them is mentioned, our mind should be impressed with the same feeling of reverence. Those, therefore, to whom he imparts such titles, he distinguishes by some small spark of his refulgence, so as to entitle them to honor, each in his own place. In this way, we must consider that our earthly father possesses something of a divine nature in him, because there is some reason for his bearing a divine title, and that he who is our prince and ruler is admitted to some communion of honor with God. 36. Wherefore, we ought to have no doubt that the Lord here lays down this universal rule, that is, that knowing how every individual is set over us by his appointment, we should pay him reverence, gratitude, obedience, and every duty in our power. And it makes no difference whether those on whom the honor is conferred are deserving or not. Be they what they may, the Almighty, by conferring their station upon them, shows that he would have them honored. The commandment specifies the reverence due to those to whom we owe our being. This nature herself should in some manner teach us. For they are monsters and not men, who petulantly and contumeliously violate the paternal authority. Hence the Lord orders all who rebel against their parents to be put to death, they being, as it were, unworthy of the light in paying no deference to those to whom they are indebted for beholding it and it is evident, from the various appendices to the law, that we are correct in stating that the honor here referred to consists of three parts, reverence, obedience, and gratitude. The first of these the Lord enforces 
when he commands that whose curseth his father or his mother shall be put to death. In this way he avenges insult and contempt. The second he enforces, when he denounces the punishment of death on disobedient and rebellious children. To the third belongs our Savior's declaration that God requires us to do good to our parents, Matthew 15. And whenever Paul mentions this commandment, he interprets it as enjoining obedience. 37. A promise is added by way of recommendation, the better to remind us how pleasing to God is the submission which is here required. Paul applies that stimulus to rouse us from our lethargy when he calls this the first commandment with promise, the promise contained in the first table not being specially appropriated to any one commandment, but extended to the whole law. Moreover, the sense in which the promise is to be taken is as follows. The Lord spoke to the Israelites specially of the land which he had promised them for an inheritance. If, then, the possession of the land was an earnest of the divine favor, we cannot wonder if the Lord was pleased to testify his favor by bestowing long life, as in this way they were able long to enjoy his kindness. The meaning, therefore, is, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thou may be able, during the course of a long life, to enjoy the possession of the land which is to be given thee in testimony of my favor." but as the whole earth is blessed to believers, we justly class the present life among the number of divine blessings. Whence this promise has, in like manner, reference to us also, inasmuch as the duration of the present life is a proof of the divine benevolence toward us. It is not promised to us, nor was it promised to the Jews, as if in itself it constituted happiness, but because it is an ordinary symbol of the divine favor to the pious. Wherefore, if any one who is obedient to parents happens to be cut off before mature age, a thing which not infrequently happens, the Lord nevertheless adheres to his promise as steadily as when he bestows a hundred acres of land where he had promised only one. The whole lies in this. We must consider that long life is promised only in so far as it is a blessing from God, and that it is a blessing only in so far as it is a manifestation of divine favor. This, however, he testifies and truly manifests to his servants, more richly and substantially, by death. 38. Moreover, while the Lord promises the blessing of present life to children who show proper respect to their parents, he, at the same time, intimates that an inevitable curse is impending over the rebellious and disobedient and that it may not fail of execution, he, in his law, pronounces sentence of death upon them and orders it to be inflicted. If they escape the judgment, he, in some way or other, will execute vengeance. For we see how a great number of this description of individuals fall either in battle or in brawls. Others of them are overtaken by unwanted disasters, and almost all are a proof that the threatening is not used in vain. But if any do escape till extreme old age, yet, because deprived of the blessing of God in this life, they only languish on in wickedness, and are reserved for severer punishment in the world to come, they are far from participating in the blessing promised to obedient children. It ought to be observed, by the way, that we are ordered to obey parents only in the Lord. This is clear from the principle already laid down, for the place which they occupy is one to which the Lord has exalted them, 
by communicating to them a portion of his own honor. Therefore, the submission yielded to them should be a step on our ascent to the supreme parent, and hence, if they instigate us to transgress the law, they deserve not to be regarded as parents, but as strangers attempting to seduce us from obedience to our true father. The same holds in the case of rulers, masters, and superiors of every description. For it were unbecoming and absurd that the honor of God should be impaired by their exaltation, an exaltation which, being derived from him, ought to lead us up to him. Sixth Commandment, Thou shalt not kill. 39. The purport of this commandment is that since the Lord has bound the whole human race by a kind of unity, the safety of all ought to be considered as entrusted to each. In general, therefore, all violence and injustice, and every kind of harm from which our neighbor's body suffers, is prohibited. Accordingly, we are required faithfully to do what in us lies to defend the life of our neighbor, to promote whatever tends to his tranquility, to be vigilant in warding off harm, and, when danger comes, to assist in removing it. Remembering that the divine lawgiver thus speaks, consider, moreover, that he requires you to apply the same rule in regulating your mind. It were ridiculous that he who sees the thoughts of the heart and has special regard to them should train the body only to rectitude. This commandment, therefore, prohibits the murder of the heart and requires a sincere desire to preserve our brother's life. The hand, indeed, commits the murder, but the mind, under the influence of wrath and hatred, conceives it. How can you be angry with your brother without passionately longing to do him harm? If you must not be angry with him, neither must you hate him, hatred being nothing but inveterate anger. However you may disguise the fact, or endeavor to escape from it by vain pretexts. Where either wrath or hatred is, there is an inclination to do mischief. If you still persist in tergiversation, the mouth of the Spirit has declared that, quote, Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, 1 John 3.15. And the mouth of our Savior has declared that, quote, Whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, but whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell-fire. Matthew 5.22 40. Scripture notes a twofold equity on which this commandment is founded. Man is both the image of God and our flesh. Wherefore, if we would not violate the image of God, we must hold the person of man sacred. If we would not divest ourselves of humanity, we must cherish our own flesh. The practical inference to be drawn from the redemption and gift of Christ will be elsewhere considered. The Lord has been pleased to direct our attention to these two natural considerations as inducements to watch over our neighbor's preservation, that is, to revere the divine image impressed upon him and to embrace our own flesh. To be clear of the crime of murder, it is not enough to refrain from shedding man's blood. If in act you perpetrate, if in endeavor you plot, if in wish and design you conceive what is adverse to another's safety, you have the guilt of murder. On the other hand, if you do not, according to your means and opportunity, study to defend his safety, by that inhumanity you violate the law. 
but if the safety of the body is so carefully provided for, we may hence infer how much care and exertion is due to the safety of the soul, which is of immeasurably higher value in the sight of God. Seventh Commandment Thou shalt not commit adultery. 41. The purport of this commandment is, that as God loves chastity and purity, we ought to guard against all uncleanness. The substance of the commandment, therefore, is, that we must not defile ourselves with any impurity or libidinous excess. To this corresponds the affirmative, that we must regulate every part of our conduct chastely and continently. The thing expressly forbidden is adultery, to which lust naturally tends, that its filthiness, being of a grosser and more palpable form, inasmuch as it casts a stain even on the body, may dispose us to abominate every form of lust. As the law under which man was created was not to lead a life of solitude, but enjoy a helpmeet for him, and ever since he fell under the curse, the necessity for this mode of life is increased, the Lord made the requisite provision for us in this respect by the institution of marriage, which, entered into under his authority, he has also sanctified with his blessing. Hence it is evident that any mode of cohabitation different from marriage is cursed in his sight, and that the conjugal relation was ordained as a necessary means of preventing us from giving way to unbridled lust. Let us beware, therefore, of yielding to indulgence, seeing we are assured that the curse of God lies on every man and woman cohabiting without marriage. 42. Now, since natural feeling and the passions unnamed by the fall make the marriage tie doubly necessary, save in the case of those whom God has by special grace exempted, let every individual consider how the case stands with himself. Virginity, I admit, is a virtue not to be despised, but since it is denied to some, and to others granted only for a season, those who are assailed by incontinence, and unable successfully to war against it, should retake themselves to the remedy of marriage, and thus cultivate chastity in the way of their calling. Those incapable of self-restraint, if they apply not to the remedy allowed and provided for intemperance, war with God and resist his ordinance. And let no man tell me, as many in the present day do, that he can do all things God helping. The help of God is present with those only who walk in his ways, Psalm 91.14, that is, in his callings from which all withdraw themselves who, omitting the remedies provided by God, vainly and presumptuously strive to struggle with and surmount their natural feelings. That continence is a special gift from God, and of the class of those which are not bestowed indiscriminately on the whole body of the church, but only on a few of its members, our Lord affirms, Matthew 19, verse 12. He first describes a certain class of individuals who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heavenly sake, that is, in order that they may be able to devote themselves with more liberty and less restraint to the things of heaven. But lest any one should suppose that such a sacrifice was in every man's power, he had shown a little before that all are not capable, but those only to whom it is specially given from above. Hence he concludes, He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. Paul asserts the same thing still more plainly when he says, Every man has his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. 
1 Corinthians 7, verse 7. 43. Since we are reminded by an express declaration that it is not in every man's power to live chaste in celibacy, although it may be his most strenuous study and aim to do so, that it is a special grace which the Lord bestows only on certain individuals, in order that they may be less encumbered in his service, do we not oppose God and nature as constituted by him, if we do not accommodate our mode of life to the measure of our ability? The Lord prohibits fornication, therefore he requires purity and chastity. The only method which each has of preserving it is to measure himself by his capacity. Let no man rashly despise matrimony as a thing useless or superfluous to him. Let no man long for celibacy unless he is able to dispense with the married state. Nor even here let him consult the tranquility or convenience of the flesh, save only that, freed from this tie, he may be the readier and more prepared for all the offices of piety. And since there are many on whom this blessing is conferred only for a time, let every one, in abstaining from marriage, do it so long as he is fit to endure celibacy. If he has not the power of subduing his passion, let him understand that the Lord has made it obligatory on him to marry. The Apostle shows this when he enjoins, quote, Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband, end quote. Quote, if they cannot contain, let them marry. End quote. He first intimates that the greater part of men are liable to incontinence, and then of those so liable, he orders all without exception to have recourse to the only remedy by which unchastity may be obviated. The incontinent, therefore, neglecting to cure their infirmity by this means, sin by the very circumstance of disobeying the apostle's command. And let not a man flatter himself that because he abstains from the outward act, he cannot be accused of unchastity. His mind may in the meantime be inwardly inflamed with lust. For Paul's definition of chastity is purity of mind combined with purity of body. Quote, the unmarried woman careth for the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. 1 Corinthians 7.34 Therefore, when he gives a reason for the former precept, he not only says that it is better to marry than to live in fornication, but that it is better to marry than to burn. 44. Moreover, when spouses are made aware that their union is blessed by the Lord, they are thereby reminded that they must not give way to intemperate and unrestrained indulgence. For though honorable wedlock veils the turpitude of incontinence, it does not follow that it ought forthwith to become a stimulus to it. Wherefore, let spouses consider that all things are not lawful for them. Let there be sobriety in the behavior of the husband toward the wife, and of the wife in her turn toward the husband, each so acting as not to do anything unbecoming the dignity and temperance of married life. Marriage contracted in the Lord ought to exhibit measure and modesty, not run to the extreme of wantonness. This excess Ambrose censured gravely, but not undeservedly, when he described the man who shows no modesty or comeliness in conjugal intercourse as committing adultery with his wife. Lastly, let us consider who the lawgiver is that thus condemns fornication. Even he who, as he is entitled to possess us entirely, requires integrity of body, soul, and spirit. 
Therefore, while he forbids fornication, he at the same time forbids us to lay snares for our neighbor's chastity by lascivious attire, obscene gestures, and impure conversation. There was reason in the remark made by Archelaus to a youth clothed effeminately and over-luxuriously, that it mattered not in what part his wantonness appeared. We must have respect to God, who abhors all contaminations, whatever be the part of soul or body in which it appears. And that there may be no doubt about it, let us remember that what the Lord here commends is chastity. If he requires chastity, he condemns everything which is opposed to it. Therefore, if you aspire to obedience, let not your mind burn within with evil conscupiscence, your eyes wanton after corrupting objects, nor your body be decked for allurement. Let neither your tongue by filthy speeches, nor your appetite by intemperance, entice the mind to corresponding thoughts. All vices of this description are a kind of stains which despoil chastity of its purity. Eighth Commandment Thou shalt not steal. 45. The purport is, that injustice being an abomination to God, we must render to every man his due. In substance, then, the commandment forbids us to long after another man's goods, and, accordingly, requires every man to exert himself honestly in preserving his own. For we must consider that what each individual possesses has not fallen to him by chance, but by the distribution of the sovereign lord of all, that no one can pervert his means to bad purposes without committing a fraud on a divine dispensation. There are very many kinds of theft. One consists in violence, as when a man's goods are forcibly plundered and carried off. Another in malicious imposture, as when they are fraudulently intercepted. A third in the more hidden craft, which takes possession of them with a semblance of justice and a fourth in sycophancy, which wiles them away under the pretense of donation. But not to dwell too long in enumerating the different classes, we know that all the arts by which we obtain possession of the goods and money of our neighbors, for sincere affection substituting an eagerness to deceive or injure them in any way, are to be regarded as thefts. Though they may be obtained by an action at law, a different decision is given by God. He sees the long train of deception by which the man of craft begins to lay nets for his more simple neighbor, until he entangles him in his meshes, sees the harsh and cruel laws by which the more powerful oppresses and crushes the feeble, sees the enticements by which the more wily baits the hook for the less wary, though all these escape the judgment of man, and no cognizance is taken of them nor is the violation of this commandment confined to money, or merchandise, or lands, but extends to every kind of right. For we defraud our neighbors to their hurt if we decline any of the duties which we are bound to perform towards them. If an agent or an indolent steward wastes the substance of his employer, or does not give due heed to the management of his property, if he unjustly squanders or luxuriously wastes the means entrusted to him, if a servant holds his master in derision, divulges his secrets, or in any way is treacherous to his life or his goods, if, on the other hand, a master cruelly torments his household, he is guilty of theft before God, since every one who, in the exercise of his calling, performs not what he owes to others, keeps back or makes away with what does not belong to him. 
46. This commandment, therefore, we shall duly obey, if, contented with our own lot, we study to acquire nothing but honest and lawful gain. If we long not to grow rich by injustice, nor to plunder our neighbor of his goods, that our own may thereby be increased. If we hasten not to heap up wealth cruelly wrung from the blood of others. If we do not, by means lawful and unlawful, with excessive eagerness, scrape together whatever may glut our avarice, or meet our prodigality. On the other hand, let it be our constant aim, faithfully to lend our counsel and aid to all, so as to assist them in retaining their property. Or if we have to do with the perfidious or crafty, let us rather be prepared to yield somewhat of our right than to contend with them. And not only so, but let us contribute to the relief of those whom we see under the pressure of difficulties, assisting their want out of our abundance. Lastly, let each of us consider how far he is bound in duty to others, and in good faith pay what we owe. In the same way, let the people pay all due honor to their rulers, submit patiently to their authority, obey their laws and orders, and decline nothing which they can bear without sacrificing the favor of God. Let rulers, again, take due charge of their people, preserve the public peace, protect the good, curb the bad, and conduct themselves throughout as those who must render an account of their office to God, the judge of all. Let the ministers of churches faithfully give heed to the ministry of the word, and not corrupt the doctrine of salvation, but deliver it purely and sincerely to the people of God. Let them teach not merely by doctrine, but by example. In short, let them act the part of good shepherds towards their flocks. Let the people, in their turn, receive them as the messengers and apostles of God, render them the honor which their supreme master has bestowed on them, and supply them with such things as are necessary for their livelihood. Let parents be careful to bring up, guide, and teach their children as a trust committed to them by God. Let them not exasperate or alienate them by cruelty, but cherish and embrace them with the levity and indulgence which becomes their character. The regard due to parents from their children has already been adverted to. Let the young respect those advanced in years, as the Lord has been pleased to make that age honorable. Let the aged also, by their prudence and their experience, in which they are far superior, guide the feebleness of youth, not assailing them with harsh and clamorous invectives, but tempering strictness with ease and affability. Let servants show themselves diligent and respectful in obeying their masters, and this not with eye-service, but from the heart, as the servants of God. Let masters also not be stern and disobliging to their servants, nor harass them with excessive asperity, nor treat them with insult, but rather let them acknowledge them as brethren and fellow-servants of our heavenly Master, whom, therefore, they are bound to treat with mutual love and kindness. Let every one, I say, thus consider what in his own place and order he owes to his neighbors, and pay what he owes. Moreover, we must always have a reference to the lawgiver, and so remember that the law requiring us to promote and defend the interest and convenience of our fellow men applies equally to our minds and our hands. End of section 17